Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport about their new book, 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. E.J. is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a syndicated columnist for the Washington Post. Miles is the senior practice fellow in American democracy at the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. E.J. Dion, Miles Rappaport, welcome to That Said. Great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Mike. So, E.J., you and I, I think, first met during the TV coverage of the Clinton impeachment, if we can remember back that far. And God help us always, both. <laughs> exactly. I've always been a big fan, and I was hoping if, to start, you could fill us in a little bit. How did you get to be E.J. Dion, if you will? Well, because it's my father's name. I'm a junior. And uh, they, um, to their everlasting credit, my dear parents didn't want to call me junior. So I've been EJ all my life. I grew up in a wonderful old mill town, troubled economically, but I really still love it, called Fall River, Massachusetts. It was a factory town, a union town. Uh, and it was a very political town. Um, and a friend of mine once said of Fall River, there are three kinds of people in Fall River, people running for office, people getting ready to run for office, and people recovering from running for office. And every election from city council and school committee to mayor was very contested, and everybody took sides. It was a mostly Catholic, overwhelmingly Democratic labor town. And um, a lot, I, I always say that about 80% of what I believe probably comes from growing up in Fall River, Massachusetts. Um, I went to college up the road at, at Harvard. I got very, I, I'd always been political. My, uh, you know, we're, we're recording this shortly after Father's Day. And um, my dad, I always said, trained me to do what I did because my dad was a conservative, but he encouraged me to argue with him. And as I became a teenager, I became more and more liberal. And my dad and I would have um, arguments all the time. And they weren't hateful arguments. We loved each other. And it, it taught me you can argue with somebody you love. Um, he even, uh, when I was 13, gave me a subscription to the New Republic, were very liberal back then in those days, so I could strengthen my side of the argument when I asked him for one. And so he kind of prepared me for this. I got very involved in anti-war politics in college. I worked on a congressional campaign. My dad died young. I was 16 when he died. And I was really blessed to have a second father, a guy called Bert Yaffe, who ran as an anti-war Democrat for Congress in 1970. And um, I was always interested in politics. I was always interested in journalism. My first job was throwing papers in trucks during the summer at the Fall River Herald News and doing paper routes. Nobody wanted to, they couldn't get somebody to do um, politics, journalism, and I always liked academics. And and I, I'll just say one other thing. I was very fortunate that, to, you know, I think you need a lot of lucky breaks in life. If, and I got one when I took a great um, class called Working Class Politics with a young professor at Harvard called Bill Schneider. And we got hold of all the polls the New York Times did in the 1972 election, the McGovern-Nixon race. Through that, I got to know uh, the late Jack Rosenthal, who wrote all those polling stories. He later became the editorial page editor. Um, and eventually, I was uh, through that, I got, I got to work a summer in Paris, being a Canuck from New England. French was my first language. Uh, and um, I also got hired to help set up what became the New York Times CBS poll. That's how I got into journalism. And but for that fortunate event of meeting Jack and getting involved with the post poll, you know, Times polls rather for academic purposes, um, I wouldn't have gotten into journalism. And then long story, but I ended up on the post uh, at the end of the 80s. And I've been there ever since. And uh, it's been a blessing. Uh, uh, one other thing is I teach and uh, the other debt I owe for my dissertation is to the Pressman's Union of the New York Times for going on strike. They're my first acknowledgement because that allowed me to get my dissertation going. So it was an unexpected sabbatical thanks to the long New York Times strike of 1978. That's great. So now, Miles, I met you when I was in the 10th grade. You were in the 12th grade at Great Neck South 
senior high school, you were running for president of the general organization, the GO, as we called it, our student government. And I remember listening to your speech in the amphitheater there. I remember voting for you as a 10th grader. And thank you. Uh, and was happy Could that I you- say, by the way, Michael, that one of my great sadnesses is I never got to vote for my friend Miles in any of his races, which is a great sadness. <laughs> yeah, well, you had to move to Connecticut. Yeah. So, but anyway, you won. You were GO president in 67, I guess it was. Yeah. And those were great political years for us in Great Lakes South. So tell us about yourself. I've given us a little bit of a background that you were, I think, valedictorian of your high school class and president of the general organization. Well, and it was a really interesting time to kind of come of age, um, you know, politically. Yeah, it was a, you know, Great Neck was a very liberal town and a lot of activist uh, people uh, live there. Um, and so, you know, there we were in 66 and 67 and, you know, then on to uh, Harvard from there in 68 and 69. So it was all kind of a whirlwind of activism on issues of civil rights, issues of the Vietnam War. I brought that activism to uh, with me to Harvard and after uh, getting out of college, I went, I became a community organizer. So I spent 13 years actually as I've had three careers, I should say. First, uh, equally time consuming in length. Uh, I did about 15 years of community organizing, both in uh, Chicago, where I got my Alinsky training and in um, Massachusetts, where I was active in Massachusetts fair share. And then I got to Connecticut. And then my second career was politics. I was in Connecticut politics also for 15 years, 10 in the state legislature in Connecticut, where I was the chair of the elections committee, which actually, you know, is relevant to, to, uh, to the book and to the issue. Uh, and then four years as secretary of the state. So I did uh, a lot of work on voting rights issues and campaign finance reform issues and gerrymandering and redistricting and all those issues. Um, and then I ran for Congress in 1998, lost. To uh, in a Democratic primary to a fine congressman who's still there named John Larson, who actually now has sponsored a bill for universal voting. So we'll come back to him in in a while. Uh, and then I spent 13 years at Demos and and three years at Common Cause. And so I've really been working on these issues for my whole life. And I had the good fortune of going to the Kennedy School where I bumped back into a guy named E.J. Dion and uh, and uh, the book and the and the and the work on universal voting really came out of that. So, uh, EJ, why don't you tell us about the origins of the book, the Universal Voter Working Group that you and Miles chaired between Brookings and the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at the Kennedy School. Yeah, I have been. Thank you uh, for that. I, I have been for this for a long time, and. Uh, for a variety of reasons, I have spent quite a bit of time in Australia and got to know quite a lot about Australian politics. And they have had this system for a hundred years of requiring everybody to vote. And as Miles and I like to say, uh, there aren't many ideas you propose that are new here that have a hundred years proof of concept, what the Australians do. And I looked at this system and I said, this is a very sensible system and it has changed the culture of Australian politics, and we can get into that as we talk, because I do think the cultural change created when everybody knows that virtually everybody's going to vote is enormous and very good for democracy. And so I like the idea, even before we began to have all of these battles about voter suppression, but when we started looking at these efforts, particularly with the weakening of the Voting Rights Act by the Supreme Court, Uh, to make it harder for people to vote again, um, it struck me that this idea was the idea we needed now because the best way to defend voting as a right is to, uh, we think, uh, is to assert a universal civic duty to vote. I wrote a piece about this, a, a, a report, a short report for the Brookings Institution with my colleague Bill Galston, who also believes in this, back in 2015, um, uh, which Miles then read. And uh, Miles can pick it up from there because Miles was the real motive force uh, behind the uh, working group. I I just want to say that it's uh, 
been a real joy to work with Miles on this. Miles uh, is such an inveterate organizer. I tell everybody that when he dies and goes to heaven, he's going to organize the angels into a union. And uh, I want somebody to write a theological treatise on Miles, what collective bargaining with God might uh, look like. But, you know, we then put together this group of extraordinary people uh, in the democracy community, the voting rights community, to really test this idea and see how it works. And I'll uh, I'll kick it over to Miles uh, to take it from there. So, Miles, this was the Lift Every Voice report? Yes, yes. Well, I'll, I'll go back a little bit because, so having said how long I worked in various places on the issues around voting rights, if I go back just to when I got into the Connecticut legislature, which was 1984, uh, I've really been working on these issues for almost 40 years. And, you know, I believe I've worked on a lot of different issues, you know, same day voter registration and uh, anti-gerrymandering and restoration of voting rights for people who have felony convictions and a lot of different issues. And I believe in those reforms. I really do. And I've worked really hard on them, but they haven't moved the needle very far. You know what I mean? If you compare, I mean, 2018 was the highest turnout um, in a midterm election in a very, very long time, maybe ever. Um, and that was 50.3%. And the 2020 election, which was a quite an accomplishment when you think about all that had to go into doing a, conducting an election in the middle of a pandemic, uh, and in the middle of 400 lawsuits and arguments over the process, you know, have, again, the highest turnout in a presidential election in a very, very long time. And so, uh, but that was only 66.2 or 0.3%, depending on how you look at it. So I thought, all right, so what is it after all this time of working on these issues and not really making that much progress, although for sure there's been pushback on it, what could really, really move the needle? And then I had the good fortune of reading EJ's piece. Um, and I said, wow, I actually had two reactions. This was one is, wow, this is really interesting. And two, how is it that I've never really been in a conversation about this issue, even though, as EJ said, uh, it's been in effect in uh, Australia for a hundred years and 25 other democratic countries around the globe. This is like ridiculous. And so, uh, when I bumped into EJ, who, you know, as he said, every now and then you need a little bit of a push from fate. Um, you know, we met at the, at the Kennedy School and talked and I got up my courage to say, would you be willing to co-chair this working group with me? And he said yes to my great delight. And so we worked at this for two years with a terrific group of scholars, activists, lawyers, uh, et cetera, and came out with a report, which, as you said, was lift every voice, the urgency of universal civic duty voting. And one of the people who read that was uh, Diane Moctel, who is the executive director of the New Press, which is a terrific uh, nonpartisan, nonprofit uh, publisher, who said, I've been wanting somebody to do a book about this forever. Would you be willing to do it? And I said, yes. And would it be OK with you if E.J. Dion did it with me? And she said something like, you know, twist my arm. Uh, and so we did it together. And I'll, I'll return E.J.'s compliment by saying that it has been a delight to work with him on this uh, on this project, you know, and not only is he a major, major political figure in the country, he's also just a wonderful, wonderful human being. So um, I'm really, really happy with where we are. And it is our determined goal to take this idea of universal voting, use the momentum created by the book and the book tour that we have just finished uh, to try to make this into a real issue in the country and a real possibility uh, at various levels, potentially the federal level, but also more more likely the state and local level. So that's the job from here. So can we define terms as we move through the book and the various aspects of the book? The book makes the case for what you call universal civic duty voting, what the Australians call compulsory attendance voting. So can we, one of you guys, can we define terms? What is universal civic duty voting? How is it mandated, if you will? Yeah, in the book, we try to be very specific. Obviously, states, localities, the federal government will debate all the particulars about how you put this together. But we try to put together a very concrete proposal uh, for how it would work. And um, it, it's uh, it's existed at various times in about two dozen countries. Um, we broadly use the Australian model for our proposal with some American variations in it. 
um, because that's one with the you know best your longest track record. Uh, there are other countries that have done it well, like Uruguay uses it, for example, has used it very effectively. Some countries in Europe have used it. A number of countries in Latin America. So let's sort of begin with the Australian system. The first thing they do, which is so important, is they make it very easy for people to register to vote. Uh, they require registration, but they make it very easy to register to vote. And the result is, last I looked at the numbers, that 96% of Australians are registered to vote. And uh, what happens is, if you're on the voter rolls, uh, you are required to cast a ballot, but they make it very easy for people to cast a ballot. For example, if you are in your state, you can vote at any polling place in your state on Election Day, no matter where you live. Uh, they also have early voting and mail voting and mail voting is on the rise in Australia as it is here. Um, and the uh, voting is on a Saturday, which is essentially a holiday. It means, by the way, they can use all their schools to vote. We don't specifically propose Saturday voting. It would be complicated uh, in our country, partly for religious reasons, but we do think voting election day should be a holiday. And um, the everybody knows that if they don't vote, they will get a little notice from the government um, that says you didn't vote. And um, if you give any sort of reasonable excuse for not voting, you don't pay a fine. Uh, or you simply pay a fine, which is $20 Australian, which uh, last I checked, the exchange rate was about $15 American. And the result is that 90% of Australians, of the registered Australians, show up to vote. They had that, uh, Australia had a uh, an election a few weeks back, and I just looked up the numbers this morning, and they did indeed have a 90% turnout, 89.6 or 7. The... Um, only about, as I said, about 13% of the non-voters ever pay a fine. So when you look at that system, it's not a shove, it's not a hammer, it's really more of a nudge for everybody to vote. But what that does is um, it turns Election Day into a kind of big civic holiday. Australians are famous for all the food that's sold at polling places. For uh, It's sold there to raise money for school groups and community groups. Um, and the democracy sausage and the pastry and all the rest is so institutionalized that you can now look up online who, which polling place has the best menu and you can pick your polling place by the menu uh, if you want. Um, we would add a couple of American variations to this. Um, uh, for one, uh, we, we emphasize we don't call it compulsory voting because um, you do not have to vote for anyone under this system. What you're required to do is participate. If you want to cast a blank ballot, you can do it. If you want to write in Michael Zeldin, you can do it. If you want to draw a cartoon character, you can do it. And just to make very clear that we wouldn't require anybody to vote for anyone, we would add a none of the above option to the ballot, an option that they now have um, in Arizona and Nevada for voters to uh, pick. We would allow for conscientious objection for those people who really have a moral obligation, uh, a moral um, objection to participating in politics altogether. That's true of some religious groups. It's true of others. Uh, again, we're trying to answer some of the objections that you might run into um, in the United States. And we also try very hard in our proposal to make clear that we do not want to create uh, what you might call the Ferguson problem for low-income people. Low-income people, particularly Black Americans, have confronted this compounding of fines and penalties um, that become criminal. Uh, we don't want that with this. We The fine would be $20, no interest, no penalties. It's not a criminal fine. You could pay the fine with an hour of community service. Um, we just we want to provide the nudge, which seems sufficient in Australia to create a very different culture around democracy and where there are no issues of voter suppression, making it harder for people to vote, but rather uh, a commitment to making it uh, easy for everyone. Just to close, my favorite picture of an Australian election is of uh, four surfers near Bondi Beach in their wetsuits with their surfboards leaning up against the voting booth where they are casting their ballots, ready to jump right back into the surf again. 
everybody understands this is your obligation as a citizen, and that includes the servers at Bondi Beach. <laughs> so, Miles, let me ask you this. In this Australian system, which was in, adopted in 1924, when it was adopted, we saw that both parties saw advantages to this system for them. So how have you guys sorted out this issue of how would this universal civic voting impact the electorate and political parties? How do you see that layout? Well, we chose the title 100% democracy in the case for universal voting. We sort of borrowed the term universal voting, both because it's compact, but also from the universal national service uh, movement where what they mean when they say universal service is that everybody will serve. And so we think it's the right and the, and the best way to describe what we're really talking about. You know, obviously we're going to run into opposition and, you know, probably there will be less Republican support uh, for this, at least initially, um, you know, than, than Democratic support. But the truth is we are doing this. And I think both EJ and I feel very strongly about this, not as a way to kind of, strategically advanced democratic uh, candidates, but rather, you know, as a real effort to enhance democracy. And the truth is, um, you know, I think there's a very good case to be made that you can't project that this is going to, you know, help democratic candidates. It will change the electorate. So the first thing that will happen in addition to participation going as it did in Australia from 60%, uh, on a, in a good year to 90% and 90% every time for a hundred years. Um, you know, uh, what we have in, in the United States is an electorate that is very uneven. So people who are, um, younger tend to vote less. People with less education vote less. People who are in communities of color, uh, vote less. Although, um, you know, black Americans are very, very close now to white Americans in terms of participation level um, and income. You know, people who are wealthier vote more. So in instantaneously, what you would have if you'd had universal voting is an electorate that fully reflects the country's population as a whole. And there's an interesting analogy, Michael, to, uh, to jury duty, I think, which is we have had for 100 years the requirement for every citizen to serve on a jury if you're called. And the reason that we do that is because we want the jury pool kind of writ large to fully reflect the population as a whole as the best way of guaranteeing fair verdicts and fair punishments. We think the exact same logic applies to voting, which is that we want or we absolutely should want that the decisions that affect our lives and the people who make those decisions uh, should be made by the most fully reflective population. And that is something that will happen here. And in 2020, I'll let EJ talk about this a little bit, but in both 2020 and 2021, we have strong evidence that this can also help Republicans and not just Democrats. So EJ, do you want to talk to that? What yeah, we I saw do. The voter I, turnout? Yeah, let me, let me back up because I do want to get to that. We We actually did polling on this idea and, I joke that Miles and I are either the two most honest or dumbest book writers in history because our own polling shows Americans aren't there yet. There were only 26% of Americans support our idea uh, currently. Uh, although we would note that only 48% strongly oppose it, which means that if you take the strongly somewhat favor with the somewhat opposed plus the don't knows, about half of Americans are at least open to persuasion on this. But what was striking about this polling, and granted, we did it in February of uh, 2020 before uh, Donald Trump uh, began his crazy January and February 2020, before Donald Trump began his crazy campaign about voter you know, uh, against mail voting and leading up that led up to January 6th. Um, Republicans and Democrats weren't all that different in their attitudes toward this, that uh, you had 33 percent support among uh, Democrats, but 29% support among Republicans. Um, and furthermore, Republicans and Democrats were equally likely, uh, 69% each, to say voting is a right and a duty. Um, and so um, going in here, there are some Republicans who are ready to support it. But the other point is that um, a bigger electorate does not automatically mean a Democratic electorate. Um, there are a couple of big holes in our current electorate. One are young people. Young people vote at a much lower rate than older people do. 
Um, the census showed that uh, 54% of 18 to 29s voted in 2020, 74.5% of the 65 pluses. Our system makes it very, very hard on young people to vote because our system favors people who are stable, who are stay in the same address a long time. Young people, by their very nature, move around a lot. Um, and a lot of times you may get interested in an election, say, three weeks before, like a lot of people do. And you discover that your town is shut down voter registration or your state. Um, you know, that's why one of the reforms we think is so important is same day voter registration. But if everybody's required to vote, you'll definitely increase participation among the young, which probably favors Dems a little bit. But you also have much lower rates by class where working class voters vote at a much lower rate. Uh, than um, well-off voters, uh, educate, people with less formal education vote at much lower rates um, than uh, well, you know, than um, people with advanced degrees. Uh, people with advanced degrees are about to have twice the percentage of participation. And what you find is a lot of those voters, at least under the current circumstance, um, vote Republican. Uh, two examples of why high Republicans shouldn't be afraid of high turnout. Um, in 2020, people were amazed that Republicans picked up House seats, even as Joe Biden was winning the election. That's because Republican turnout was way up compared to 2018, the midterms, uh, among their working class uh, base. Similarly, Virginia, under the Democrats, loosened their uh, voting rules, not loosened in a um, in a sense of strictness uh, to obey the law, but made it easier for people to vote. And lo and behold, on a hold on a very big turnout in 2021, Glenn Youngkin, Republican, got elected governor and the Republicans swept um, the all three statewide office. So we think that this w- will not necessarily favor one party. We do think it will for if we get in the way of discrimination that is now uh, directed at black and Latino uh, voters. Um, but we should want to do that anyway, no matter what your party is. The Voting Rights Acts, once upon a time, were bipartisan in their support. Republicans helped pass the original Voting Rights Act. And we would love Republicans to come back to a time when they're not afraid of a big electorate, because we don't think they should be. And in fact, the one thing that EJ points out, Miles, and either of you can talk about it, but I remember reading in your book, the study by Anthony Fowler, of the University of Chicago about the impact that universal voting had on policy and how who was advantaged when they went to universal voting. Does someone want to talk about that? Sure. Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, studies and, and books to indicate that under our current system, the thrust of government policy is very much directed towards the the top of the income class towards both frequent voters as well, of course, as, as donors to the in the political system, which is another uh, issue entirely. But what happens, you know, so that that in Benjamin Page's work, the preferences of the bottom seventy percent of the population have almost no impact on um, on public policy. And what Anthony Fowler's work has done and others is to show that when you have universal voting but some tendency for public policy to be more egalitarian, to reflect more um, spending on the concerns of the of people at the lower end of the population scale or and middle and lower, I should say. And I think that's important. I mean, I think from the point of view of EJ and myself, who are, you know, unabashedly uh, progressives, uh, that's a really that's a that's a good thing. For- and that, and then at this point, a lot of those voters are Republican, by the way, and it would actually push. I, I think there's one other effect to this that I'd like to underline, which is, and, and this is why some Republicans I know support it uh, openly and some quietly. Uh, Henry Olson, uh, at the who writes a uh, conservative writes for the Post, supports it. Um, uh, Matt Lewis, a conservative, had a sympathetic piece about this. Um, it would represent the vote, many of the voters who vote Republican, but it also would likely bring in less ideological voters. And it would make the electorate somewhat more moderate in the broadest sense of that term. And I have a good Republican friend I'm trying to encourage to say this publicly who says he's all for this because he thinks it would 
pull the Republican Party away from the extremes, which is something he extreme right, which is something he would very much like to do now. This is a conservative guy, but he doesn't like the power of QAnon and the, you know, the election conspiracists in his party. Uh, and I think that would be another effect of this system that a lot of people across the spectrum could be uh, sympathetic to. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of oversell this in terms of, uh, you know, the cure for our toxic polarization. Yes. I think is a huge concern, but I think it would help uh, in the following way, you know, and uh, um, we've all heard this, you know, from both Democratic and Republican consultants this year, 2022 is a turnout election. We don't need to persuade people. We just need to get our people out to vote. So what happens now, the sort of the currency of the realm in current elections is you do everything possible to turn out your base and in the worser, uh, not worst, but worser uh, case, <laughs> uh, you try to depress the turnout of your opponents. And so what happens is there's this mad rush to uh, to kind of enrage to engage in the political system. But if you know as a candidate or as a political party that everybody is going to vote and therefore everybody is listening all the time, it becomes incumbent on you to speak to everybody and to make the case to everyone that your ideas are the better ideas and not just to say, well, if we can just get 36% and they get 35%, well, we'll win. Um, so I think that would help. I think it would really help to make sure that the, that there is less polarized and less negative campaigns. And I think that's worth really trying. Michael, would you indulge me for a second? Because Miles, we've done this a lot together, reminded me of my favorite soundbite on the current system, which I forgot to use. Uh, which is that our current system is like a fancy dinner party uh, with an A-list and a B-list and a C-list. Uh, and the A-list under our system are the likely voters, people who are registered and vote a lot. They get all of the attention, as Miles just suggested. There's a B-list of registered voters who don't vote that much. They don't get much attention. And there's a C-list of the unregistered who get no attention from the system at all. And that only reinforces our turnout problems because people tend to do things when they are asked to do it. And people on that A-list are asked to participate. Yes, they also, the other side might try to suppress their votes, but they get a lot of attention, are reminded of the election, are encouraged to participate. And the B and the C-list get none. And I think it would be a very different kind of political conversation, as I think it is in, in Australia, uh, when all the politicians uh, and everybody else knows that everybody's going to vote and it creates, I think, a much more, a much healthier uh, political conversation. One other thing I want to add, because we should do it before we're finished, is Miles and I also like to say we don't think this is a magic elixir. We're not like those 19th century guys selling those little bottles that will cure what ails you. We don't pretend this will solve all our problems. And the end of our book, we talk about other reforms. You know, we're not we think we need to get rid of the Electoral College. We want to reform the campaign money system and gerrymandering. There are a lot of other problems. But we do think where voting is concerned, this would be a huge step forward um, and provides a kind of long term objective of 100% participation. And we like to sort of put on the table, a lot of times when we're arguing about voting rights, we're arguing about specific things like 10 days of early voting versus 20 days of early voting. The fundamental choice is, do you really want a democracy where everybody participates or not? And if not, who are you going to exclude? Why do you want to exclude them? We want everybody to sort of come and take a stand on yes or no, we should get as uh, close to 100% democracy as possible. And in fact, I found very interesting in the book, there was the civics history sort of lessons about what we've just been speaking, but there's also a, a moral imperative that underpins your argument, uh, Rousseau's social contract or John Rawls's theory of justice. And you've just touched upon that a bit, EJ, but can we flesh it out a little bit? Because I think the fundamental proposition here is that our country really was founded on the notion of democratic participation, and yet we've gone so far away from it. And, and you make a compelling argument that regardless of which party benefits or how political consultants are going to now have to speak and how money is going to be spent, getting people to believe in the system, that the system works, that there's a, a moral democratic 
imperative to this is a very important byproduct of, or perhaps predicate to uh, acceptance of this system. So can we talk about the the moral imperative of it, the pro-democracy, if you will, part of your argument? Go ahead, Miles. Why don't you start? No, you you start, and I have a. I'll come in afterwards. I have a I have a thought, but I'll segue off what you say. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I thank you for that. I, I really appreciate that you noticed that. I mean, one of the when we did the working group, we, you know, we thought a lot about the uh, Declaration of Independence that said that uh, the legitimacy of government depends on the consent of the governed. They didn't say consent of 50 percent of the governed or 60 percent or 30 percent. They said consent of the governed. Uh, and that we think a system built on consent of virtually all of the governed uh, is a more legitimate system. It's a more durable system uh, because people will not feel as in the same way that they are excluded from the process. Um, Right now, a lot of people don't feel welcomed into the process. And the very act of declaring voting a civic duty is to say to every single uh, adult citizen, that you are wanted in this system, you are invited to take a part in this process. And in fact, you are obligated to play your role uh, in our experiment um, in self-government. And so we think that is important. And we also think, let's be realistic about American history. When our nation was founded, the vote was restricted to essentially white men with property. And we have gone on a long journey um, my favorite, I think my favorite Obama speech is the speech he gave at Selma, where he really talked about our long journey toward real democracy, authentic democracy. And we move from um, only white men with property to all white men, including the working class, uh, black Americans who were enfranchised after the Civil War and then disenfranchised when re- Reconstruction fell. Women didn't get the vote till 1920 in the whole in the country as a whole. And finally, with the Voting Rights Act and only in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act and later with some legislation for um, Indians, for Native people, did we really have a true democracy? We think our idea completes that journey that we started a long time ago toward full inclusion. And that's why we are pushing for it. Miles, you wanted to add. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we're not naive about the situation that we're in. We're in a very dangerous moment for our democracy. There are people who are trying, who are determined to roll back the gains that EJ was just talking about and to have a kind of, you know, white minority rule by any means necessary. And that's not all Republicans, by the way. I think it's important for me to state that, you know, there were Republican secretaries of the state in 2020 that did a, a very good job of getting people out to vote, of making the accommodations of the people to vote. But there is a faction that is trying to kind of push us down. And what what we're in now, I would say, is we're in a, a kind of a vicious cycle where the lack of participation leads to the lack of government responsiveness, leads to alienation from people, leads to lack of, you know, even further lack of participation. What I think EJ and I are hoping is that the idea of universal voting it can start us on a virtuous cycle, on an upward cycle, where your starting point is full participation by everyone. I think, as Anthony Fowler pointed out, that that would make government more responsive to the needs of everyone. And I think once everyone is feeling like government is representing them to a better degree, you will get more participation and more trust in government in general. So the ideal here for us is a genuinely 100% democracy where everybody is participating. We have a political culture that kind of expects and encourages that. And we think we can get there. Uh, There's a lot of work to do. Not one book and not, not even one podcast can make the difference, but we're going to. Although this one clearly will do the trick. This is the one that's going to flip it. (laughs) But there's some organizing work to do. And that's what we hope to do in the future. You spoke about, a shared responsibility, that if people feel that there's a shared responsibility in our democracy, then you have the potential to make progress quite irrespective of whether or not a particular political consultant feels that this is in or out of his or her advantage or one political party can't yet sort out how they will be advantaged or disadvantaged of it. But that 
notion of a shared responsibility, a social contract, I think is a most compelling argument for why this is so important. Trust, trust in ourselves and trust in the institutions that are there to serve us. Right. And trust has to be earned uh, by institutions. And we think that if we have endless battles over whether we're going to exclude some people from the process or make it harder for people to vote uh, or arguments mostly rooted in falsehood about whether the system itself uh, works well, uh, we're going to have a lot of problem creating that trust. Uh, by the way, one of the things the book points out is that we vastly underfund the election process uh, in our country and that um, this underfunding, I think, helps lead to some of the core problems like not enough polling places and excessively long lines in certain places. And as a lawyer, we quote in the book says, voting rights lawyer, you know, long lines are voter suppression in action. Um, but also these fears that Trump and his supporters have harped on of voter fraud and the like. We think that an efficiently run electoral system, um, you know, there'll still be people lying about voter fraud for their own purposes out there. But if everybody knows how hard the people who work on this process work, if we could make our system a nonpartisan system uh, of uh, election administration, we have uh, we're unusual among democracies, pretty much the only one that has partisan voter administration. We think we can do a better job running our elections. And that, too, would be part of earning trust. Um, whenever I talk about this, uh, Miles, who was secretary of the state, by the way, you learn a lot writing a book with a co-author. I learned that Connecticut is the only state where they have a secretary of the state. So I always say Miles was clearly at the highest level of secretaries of state because he <laughs> had that the in there. But, Miles, you talk about this because it's really something you worked on running elections over those years. And Miles, let me just add, would you talk a little bit too about the the gateway reforms that yeah. must take place concurrently with this? Right. I mean, our intention in talking about universal voting is to kind of put a, a North Star out there of the idea that we want what we want is a reform that both uh, asks everyone, expects everyone and allows everyone to participate. Now, obviously, if you superimpose the requirement to vote on a system that is bound and determined to make it hard for people to do that, that's kind of oil and water or worse. So what we think is that the idea of universal voting can help to spur interest in what we call gateway reforms. And these are a suite of reforms that are, on the one hand, good in and of themselves because they make it more possible and more likely that people will make the choice to vote. Um, so... I would put same-day voter registration in that category. I would put automatic voter registration, where anytime you go to motor vehicles or another government agency, they automatically register you. I'd put the restoration of voting rights for people, at least when they leave prison, um, automatically getting their voting rights back. I'd put pre-registration of 16- and 17-year-olds in that category, and obviously early voting um, and expanded mail-in voting. So all of these things are good in and of themselves, but they also then make it possible for us to think seriously about uh, enacting universal voting. And we think that there's a real possibility that in places where they do have, call it Minnesota or call it Maine, where they actually have fairly well-functioning election administrations and good policies, that they may very well be open to the idea of saying, yes, let's make this into a 100% democracy. Yeah, and I would add to your list of gateway reforms, of, unless I... Did it hear you say it is no excuse absentee voting? Right. That's, yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. I, I, I like the idea as they do in DC, Washington D.C. and some other states of mailing a ballot to everybody, uh, which is another way to make participation easy. Miles has taught me this hopefulness about the system that I want to bring up here, which is even before 2000, there were a lot of states making progress on these reforms and. Uh, I, even before 2020, I'm sorry. Um, and we should be very proud as a country of what we did in 2020. We got the highest turnout, arguably, depending on how you look at the denominator in history, in the middle of a pandemic. And 
Over time, um, the number of states uh, with election day registration has gone over 20 years from six to 21, early in-person voting from 22 to 43, no excuse absentee voting that you mentioned from 22 to 34, all mail voting from one to five. The problem right now is that we are becoming uh, two nations when it comes to democracy, because as the Brennan Center showed, since the 2020 election, uh, 25 states have actually further reformed their system to make it easier to participate in 19 states and move backwards. Um, we think we should just all move forward together in building on what was an enormous success uh, in 2020. We should be proud of it instead of trying to chip away at success. I can't agree more. Let me ask, because we're going to run out of time sooner than later. Is this system constitutional? I know you had on your working group a lot of very smart lawyers, much smarter than I am as a lawyer. But can you talk about civic duty responsible voting as a constitutional principle? I'd never say our lawyers are smarter than you are, but I would say they were really smart. I mean, we really <laughs> loved though Our lawyers were extremely helpful to us. And in fact, we shout them out. Uh, a lot in the book, um, you know, Allegra Chapman and Josh Douglas, a political scientist, Cecily Hines, Janae Nelson, uh, now of the uh, head of the Legal Defense Fund, Brenda Wright, Cornell Brooks. We have a whole chapter in the book on is the idea constitutional in brief. And I'll let Miles, well, we both like to talk about this. Um, you know, it's a great chapter because it was largely written by our lawyers, as we point out to readers. Um, the issue of constitutionality is whether this is viewed as compelled speech, which probably is unconstitutional, or compelled behavior, which, like jury duty, is not unconstitutional. Um, and there are a whole slew of court cases that say that government can require certain conduct in the public interest. That's why we have jury duty. For, for that matter, think about how intrusive it is. Parents are required to make sure their children are educated till the age of 16. They either have to go to school or uh, if they're homeschooled, they need to do programs that are up to some standard. So we think that our system, by carefully showing uh, that this is not compelled speech with the none of the above option or the ability to um, to cast a blank ballot is by all the case law that our lawyers examined utterly constitutional. Now, would I ever predict what the current six to three majority on the Supreme Court would do with this? No, I have no idea how they would interpret this idea. But we think that if they followed precedent and looked at behavior versus compelled speech, saw if clearly this is not compelled speech, that yes, this is constitutional. And because you also have this opt-out, you can take your conscientious objector, you can send in a Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds photo, so you don't, you're not compelled to speak. Correct. And you can have compelled not speak issues, but I think you create a system where it's neither compelled speech or compelled not to speak, but an, an opportunity to speak. And people in Australia have said to us over the, over time that you know, uh, not casting a vote is not a protest vote because it can be ascribed all kinds of different meanings. But if you actually are do participate and you write in a third party candidate or you write in yourself or you write in an, ex, an expletive deleted, uh, you are making a protest, but you're making it through participation. And people in Australia can't understand why. Uh, people in the United States think somehow that uh, not casting a vote is an, is an act of uh, eloquent protest. Mm. Um, and the none of the above option, imagine an election in which 40% of the voters voted none of the above. That would send a signal to the political system. My own view, which is not in our book, is that we should have a meaningful none of the above option. And if it ever wins, you'd be forced a new election. But that's apart from our uh, proposal, but having the none of the above option gives people the right to protest in a very explicit way, whereas non-voters can be seen just as you know lazy or whatever. I, I think that's unfair given how hard our system makes it for people to vote sometimes. Uh, but this way, your protest is registered. Yeah, and there was a basketball player who changed his name to World Be Free. Um, I was thinking in reading this book that I, I might just change my name legally to none of the above. 
And then just <laughs> you might win the election and declare, and declare victory. Yeah, people yeah. have changed their names in, uh, in in races to win election. Uh, there is a case in Massachusetts I know of to do that. But anyway, yeah, somebody yeah, picked yeah, a very exactly. popular name and got elected to the Boston City Council. <laughs> exactly. One thing you mentioned was that we have no way of knowing how the current Supreme Court would address this issue as to the, its constitutionality. But you point out in the book that there are. at least 13 states whose constitution may offer opportunities. So you may have the opportunity for state experimentation. If you can't get this universally at the federal level, what are the state, and including the District of Columbia, the last colony, what are the options there for experimentation with this? Well, I think this, this is a perfect opportunity for states to serve their role as laboratories of democracy. You know, I think that uh, on the one hand, there, there are three levels at which universal voting could be adopted. It could be adopted at the federal level. And as I mentioned, uh, Congressman John Larson has submitted a bill called the Civic Duty to Vote Act. It is H.R. 7536. Uh, we have had expressions of interest from several other Congress people and two senators. Um, so you could imagine this happening federally. But we don't think that's very likely, uh, certainly not under the current circumstances. So. It could absolutely be done at the state level. You know, states have uh, clear control of setting the times and procedures for the elections, both for state legislative races, for statewide races, and even for congressional races. So, you know, if a, a Maine or a Vermont or a Utah or a Washington, D.C. wanted to do this, they absolutely clearly have the right. And thirdly, it could be done at the municipal level. Uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, for instance, have uh, ad- adopted ranked choice voting, both of them, without even getting permission from state legislatures. There are different laws that would affect whether municipalities can do it. But our goal, and you know, we're going to set up uh, over the next couple of months, uh, the 100% democracy initiative uh, is to, you know, begin to really uh, identify places where this, there, where there is real interest in this and see if we can move it forward legislatively, as well as, as what EJ and I have tried to do in the book, in the kind of public realm of ideas. One of the miles is organizing the initiative. And I have a dream of trying a Republican state, a Democratic state in the district and the District of Columbia. The two I have in mind, because they've been open to election reform, politics isn't as polarized in them as if you did Vermont, Utah and D.C. together, you would have diversity in terms of racial background, racial makeup of the electorate. You'd have diversity, Republican and Democratic. We'd like to show that this can work as well here as it does in Australia. Uh, But there are a lot of other states we think might be open to this. Maine and Alaska, for example, have been very open to various kinds of uh, experiments uh, before. Uh, Same with Minnesota. Colorado is another state that's, uh, you know, pioneered mail voting, was one of the pioneers of mail voting. So We think that there are reform-minded states, and again, we really want it to be a bipartisan set of experiments, um, because we don't think this is a partisan idea. It is a small-D democratic idea. The notion of this taking place as an incubator in the municipal elections was put forth by Harvard Law Professor Nick Stephanopoulos, and maybe we could talk about that, and then we'll get to closing remarks. So. That struck me as interesting, a blue city in a purple state. Maybe one of you guys can talk about his proposition that he put forward in the Atlantic. Go ahead, Miles. Well, uh, you know, what Nick wrote in the the Atlantic is a very interesting idea, and that is that if municipalities were to adopt this, uh, cities, particularly large cities, um, and all of a sudden, imagine a gubernatorial race where 90% take, let's just take Tennessee as a kind of possible example, where 90% of the people in Nashville and Memphis were turning out. Wouldn't the rest of the people in Tennessee say, wait a second, why should we give such disproportionate influence to these two big cities? We ought to adopt universal voting ourselves. There is an element of uh, echo, I should say, to Australia, where it was, as EJ said, the conservatives who said, let's get everybody to vote because you know, the labor people are going to turn out their votes and we're going to be left behind. Um, and then fortunately for the possibility, the labor folks said, yeah, we can do just fine in the system. And so they did it. So anyway, so I think that there is some real opportunity here for some cities to take the plunge. By the way, in California, there are a number of cities where there's real interest in this. Uh, 
and, you know, try to leverage the success in cities uh, to go statewide. And obviously, if some more states introduce it, that puts leverage into the national situation as well. As Miles, a former state legislator, likes to say, point of personal privilege, I think my favorite couple of pages in the book are an appendix where we have a bill that was introduced in the Connecticut state legislature for this idea uh, by a state senator named uh, Will Haskell, very young, got elected at age 22. This is a point of personal privilege because Will is my former student, and I was really excited when Will got excited by this idea, and he has been a really a strong defender of trying it in Connecticut. Um, and so I was saying between Miles and Congressman Larson and Will, maybe Connecticut will be the uh, state that pushes this forward. <laughs> so, Although there is also, there's also a bill in Massachusetts that is actually live. So uh, yeah. I, my hope is that uh, by 2023, you know, there'll be a half a dozen states where there's a serious discussion about this. And maybe we can raise it here in the District of Columbia, yeah. too, because as you guys said, it's a perfect incubator. So we're just about out of time, and you mentioned this, but I'd like you to just flesh it out in a little bit more granularity so people who are s- struck by the, the, the brilliance of this idea can join in. So wh- where do we go from here? What's next? How can people engage in this process, both as a matter of public debate and actually on the ground uh, activism. Well, as as I said, and, and we're not completely set up yet, but we are creating an, a 100% democracy initiative, um, which will be a place there where we it's kind of a center of gravity for people who want to move this forward, and people will be able to come to uh, to the website um, and and get involved. But for the short term, I would say that what people ought to think about doing is just a first first of all, if I may, buy the book. It's really a good book. It's really well written. It's, it makes a good argument and start to talk about it a, a, over their dinner tables and with friends and to see whether there is a way that we can make this into a conversation, uh, among, among people in the, uh, broad, in the, in the broad electorate. Uh, we think that would be a great thing to have happen. My, I just want to say a couple of things. One of my dreams is to have this be the national debate topic some year. Uh, high school students and college students have a topic that everybody grapples with. And this is a really fun thing to argue about because it really gets to the fundamentals, as you said, uh, of what do you think democracy is and what should democracy be? Um, and so we do want to start the debate. We do think that this idea could take off. And we always say, we're not in any way trying to say this replaces all of the other fights. We want people to continue to fight for voting rights. You know, both of us strongly uh, support the, you know, John, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, the versions of the For the People Act. Uh, we want all of the other steps to make it easy for people to vote. Uh, but to use Miles's phrase, this is like a North Star. This is something we'd like all of the pro-democracy groups uh, if they you know, to decide to add to this their list of reforms uh, that they are pushing for, um, I just like to say one thing in closing, which is um, probably most of the people listening to this assume that, of course, we vote on a secret ballot. Nobody sees how we vote. Um, what we all what we forget so easily is. We didn't used to vote as a country on secret ballots. Uh, the ballot, you used to have ballots printed by political parties or partisan newspapers, and you'd take them to the polls, and everybody would know how you voted. The famous story of Abraham Lincoln crossing off his own electors to show some humility, and so he cast his Republican ballot without voting for uh, his own electors. The secret ballot didn't come into effect until it was first again um, pioneered by our friends in Australia. It was known as the Australian ballot. Um, and over time, from the 1880s to the early uh, 20th century, Jill Lepore wrote a lovely piece about this in The New Yorker. Gradually, the secret ballot became the rule all over the country. There was a lot of opposition to it. Now we wouldn't vote in any other way. What Miles and I hope is that at some point, this idea will take off as it did in Australia, And that 50 years from now, people will say, isn't this how we always did it? Isn't this the best way to vote? 
We really think it is. And we think if it's adopted, uh, people will come to that conclusion and realize that creating a culture of inclusion is the best way to run a democracy. Well, I think I'm going to conclude with that optimistic note. I've put a note in my calendar. If you guys would do the same 50 years hence, the three of us will come back again and discuss this. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. And Michael, I just want to close, Michael, by thanking you for, A, a lifetime of really good work on legal issues and democracy issues in various places. And also thanks for having us today. This gives us an opportunity to, to reach people about an idea that we think is worthy and important and can make a real difference in how we run our democracy in the future. So thanks a lot for having us. And as I often say, I wholeheartedly share that view. And thank you, Miles, for saying it. (laughs) So the book is called 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. It's a terrific read. It's an important idea. I'm very grateful for you two to spend time with me on that said. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.